Welcome back to the Foreign Desk Podcast. I'm Lisa Daftari. We are about a month into the Biden presidency, and it looks like every day we are seeing more signs of an impending deal with the Iranian regime. Uh, let's count the ways. The Houthis, the terror group doing Iran's dirty work in Yemen against Saudi Arabia, they're fully financially and otherwise supported by the Iranian regime. They were taken off the designated U.S. terror list just a couple weeks ago. Two, on the Foreign Desk, we cover the story of how the U.S. has already begun talks with Iran about the exchange of hostages. If that doesn't signal a deal, I'm not sure what does. Three, the deal that was struck between the Trump administration, if you remember the Abraham Accords and the, uh, the deal to sell fighter jets to the UAE along with Saudi Arabia, that's been canceled for now. Again, signaling a realignment uh, with Iran and against the region's Sunni elements. Uh, the Biden administration reinstated the Palestinian aid that was called off uh, by President Trump, who refused to give terror money to extremists within Palestinian leadership. All the signs that I mentioned pointing to a reset and redrawing of the region away from a Trump Middle East that was friendly towards Israel, that brokered the Abraham Accords, in which moderate Arab states put aside generations of animosity, generations of animosity against the state of Israel in order to move forward together and away from Iran's growing influence in the region. That is the Middle East we have, but one that is quickly being dissolved in favor of allowing Iran's regime back into the fold. But it's more complicated than that. The Biden administration isn't exactly allowing the optics to be that obvious. Although the White House has signaled this week that they are ready to sit down uh, to talks with Iran, obvious, President Biden has stated that uh, sanctions will not be removed from Iran before they come to the table. Hmm, that makes it a bit more confusing. Iran's regime, on the other hand, says they're the ones who are going to be calling the shots. The sanctions have to be removed, or not only will they not attend the talks, but they have threatened to enrich uranium past the already 20% mark to 60%. So we are in what seems to be a game of chicken between the U.S. and Iran's regime, but we know both sides want a deal and that we probably will have one, just a matter of time and terms. In the meantime, the Iran regime continues its regional activities, supporting terror in Yemen, Iraq, Lebanon, Gaza, Syria, and even at the U.S.'s footstep in South America. They continue hanging their own young people, executing them for attending peaceful protests or posting anti-government content on social media, and they continue to threaten strengthening their weapons program by enriching more uranium, collecting funds from around the world, uh, and simultaneously announcing that they're the ones who are going to be limiting access to nuclear inspectors. They announced that just this week. For these reasons and many more, we are concerned about the Biden administration going too soft on Iran's regime. And to break this down for us, our first guest for today is my good friend, Elon Berman, who is the senior vice president of the American Foreign Policy Council, an expert in uh, regional security on the Middle East, Central Asia, Russian Federation, uh, all around brilliant guy. Uh, Elon, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks, Lisa. Thanks for the flattery. Oh, of course. Um, and I didn't have time or else I would have I, I would go yeah. on and on. Um, Elon, what's going on here? Well, so I, I think you broke it down very well. Um, and uh, sort of to provide commentary for this, I think it's necessary to point out a dirty little secret. The dirty little secret is that the terminus point of President Trump's maximum pressure policy and uh, of Biden's re-engagement with Iran are actually not that dissimilar. Uh, President Trump uh, was looking for 
uh, a dynamic that created greater leverage over the Iranian regime and brought the Iranian regime back to the negotiating table to hammer out a deal that was uh, longer, stronger, uh, better served American strategic interests. That's not that dissimilar from what the Biden administration wants. So the only questions here are the things that you talked about. Uh, the question of leverage. Uh, after nearly two years of maximum pressure, the U.S. has a tremendous amount of economic and political leverage over Iran. And there are some in the Biden orbit that are actively talking about preemptive concessions uh, to the Iranian regime as a sort of a good faith uh, confidence building measure. That's something that uh, the president has ruled out for now. But, you know, I, frankly, I think we have to wait and see. And the second is sequencing. Uh, who blinks first in this right. game of chicken? Because mm -hmm. what you're actually seeing on the part of the Iranians is a series of provocations that are intended to build leverage back over the United States, whether it's greater enrichment of uranium, whether it's uh, more maritime provocations in the Strait of Hormuz. There's a whole series of sort of staccato effects that the Iranians mm -hmm. are trying to do. And it's all part of a larger strategy. It's to level the playing field and level the negotiating table before they come to terms with Biden. You know, um, one of the things I write, I love about your writing, and, and I encourage you all to follow ElanElanBerman.com, um, is that you are actually a, a lawyer by training. So you're a very smart and organized thinker. Um, and this situation is not organized, nor is it smart. Right. So um Let's walk through this together. We know what the Iranians want. For, you know, they've been consistent, if, if nothing more. They've been consistent. We know where they stand. We know what they want. Uh, and we know what their bottom line is, to stay in power. Uh, so they will kill their own people. They will kill, uh, you know, in the region. They will, they, they will do whatever it takes to stay in power. But on the part of the Biden administration, it's not so clear. You use the word leverage, which is quite important in the context of this conversation. Um, on the one hand, uh, it seems like we're not using the leverage that we have. On the other hand, uh, we have heard President Biden say we're not going to um, loosen the sanctions before coming to the table. So why the confusion? Why take, you know, the Houthis off the terror list, for example? But then, you know, today, President Biden was urging, um, you know, uh, other global powers to hold the Iranians at least to their uranium enrichment or certain parts of pro proliferating their weapons program. There's a lot of contradictions, it seems. No, there definitely are. And look, I, the Biden White House has a big problem. The big problem is that they've styled their foreign policy, this sloganeering of America is back, as uh, the United States now being more inclusive after the Trump era, reaching out to international partners, um, and uh, even strategic adversaries like Russia and China to try to, try to engage better um, mm -hmm. and sort of build a more uh, durable uh, international bonds. But the reality is that all of our partners, if you think about the European Union, uh, all of our uh, sort of conversation partners, if you think about Russia and China, all of them want the same thing. And it's not what America wants. They want Iran to come in from the cold. They want business as usual with Iran. They uniformly have better economic and deeper economic ties with the Iranian regime than does the United States. But and so- Can I just I, cut you off here, just because you yeah, hit sure. something so, so, so important. What does America want? We know that you're, 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 you're absolutely right in, in saying we know what everyone else wants, but what does the Biden administration want? Well, so I, I think uh, the, you know, the, the U.S. military, the Pentagon has this, this uh, lovely phrase called uh, self-licking ice cream cone. It's uh, sort of a dynamic that you put into motion that sort of reinforces itself. And this is precisely what's happening with regard to Iran, because the Biden administration 
has elevated one aspect of Iranian rogue behavior, uh, Iran's nuclear program and nuclear acquisition over all the others, over the malign regional behavior, the sort of the uh, corrosive ideology, uh, and really focused on that very much the same way the Obama administration did half a decade ago. And as a result, the Biden administration has emphasized the fact that Iran in nuclear terms is out of the box, uh, that we need new negotiations to put them back in the box. And it has created a dynamic diplomatically that reinforces their desired outcome. And their desired outcome is re-engagement with Iran. Right. And, you know, I, it's interesting to watch this and and say to yourself, as you did, make the comparison um, with the Obama administration and um, feel as though not only are we, we, we repeating the same narrative, we have many of the same cast of characters, um, but so much has changed on the ground. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it might be a mistake, <laughs> uh, if you will, um, for the administration to assume that they can go forward and A, get the same deal. Uh, maybe there aren't, Iranians are going to call the shots and say, we want more. We want more than what we got in, in 15, uh, just because you owe us more. They've already said you have to make up for the for what you know, Donald Trump did to us. Um, you know, so what could potentially happen if we have those those sit down talks um, in in the near future? Because we're we're moving at lightning speed here. They've been in, in office for about a month, and they they can't they can't get this deal soon enough. Again, questioning what is the motivation here in Washington to want to rush through and get a bad deal? Well, and, and that's precisely the game of strategic chicken that I talked about. Because uh, the Biden administration has said, at least for now that sanctions are not gonna come off uh, until Iran comes back into full compliance with the 2015 nuclear deal, that that deal will then serve as the basis for a quote, longer and stronger deal between the US and Iran and Iran and the international community. But the Iranians are singing a very different tune. What they're saying was, look, America, you're the one that left the 2015 deal in the first place. We're not prepared to do anything better. And in fact, you have to come back to the table and you have to essentially give us uh, payments, sort of repay us for the years that you were not in compliance with the deal. And so, frankly, I think there's still a very much uh, sort of a, a large degree of daylight between Washington and Tehran. Now, the question really becomes, who's going to blink? Who is going to soften their uh, negotiating positions? Who is going to be more accommodating to the other side? The economic leverage and the political leverage is all on the side right now of the United States. There is a way through uh, political pressure, through uh, coercive sanctions, there is a way to get the Iranians to accede to a longer and stronger deal, I think. But uh, the political and diplomatic dynamics are such that it looks like the Iranians are holding all the cards. And quite unfortunate based on uh, where we had them uh, under the pressure campaign just a few months ago. Uh, speaking of just a few months ago, um, you were appointed in the spring, I believe. That's um, I remember the evening when we got the news. Um, yeah. We're quite excited that you were appointed to the International Broadcasting Advisory Board by Donald Trump, A quite a... a high honor, well-deserved honor, because you understand you. so many of these different nuances, and then that's very much necessary. Um, but we we are in a very different environment right now. Um, you know, I, I want you to speak a little bit about what happened with that appointment, because sure. we need people like you there. We've heard from Secretary of State Blinken that uh, they would like to bring in people from different 
political um, persuasions uh, to talk about the Iran nuclear deal, you would think that they'd also want people from different political uh, backgrounds, uh, working under different administrations, not only to have a smooth transition, but to bring a different perspective, particularly when it comes to the media and international media. Um, you wrote a piece, I wanna quote you on this, and I'm gonna let you then um, speak uh, about this. Um, you said in its current state, VOA, that's Voice of America's, uh, uh, for those of who aren't familiar, we have um, a platform of, of, of international news that goes from America through the perspective of America and what is happening in Washington uh, to, um, to, to various countries. And there's one that goes into Iran, Voice of America Persian Service. And you wrote in its current state, VOA Persian can't be of much use in that mission. It ranks as one of the most out-of-date, inefficient, and scandal-ridden broadcast services administrated uh, by the USAGM, and that's the platform that does broadcast into uh, foreign countries. Plagued by everything from poor management, lackluster content, such deficiencies have hindered successive administrations from fulfilling the agency's broader mission of bring, bringing reliable information to on-free societies, and you go on and on. Um, your bottom line being they have uh, prevented Washington from effectively communicating with the most important constituency inside Iran, the Iranian people themselves. Uh, Ilan, I want to, you to speak a bit about um, this position what you were hoping to accomplish, what eventually happened, and um, you know this this piece. Um, I think you 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 really nail it. The Iranian people and how they're being left out of the conversation. Well, right, and let me focus on that last part first because I frankly think it's much more important than. I mean, we'll talk about the sort of the board and all that stuff. But the uh, the question to me, the 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 big question, the sixty four thousand dollar question, is whether the Biden administration plans to engage with the Iranian regime alone the way the Obama administration did, or if it's planning a broader outreach that engages the regime and also engages the Iranian people. And to me, the long game, the sort of the smart strategic game is always about the Iranian population mm -hmm. because the Iranian regime is uh, corrupt, it's venal, it's increasingly uh, aged, and it's out of touch with the population. Two thirds of Iran's population of 85 million people are 35 or younger, which means that they weren't around at the time of the Ayatollah Khomeini's Islamic Revolution. Um, they're westward looking and they look to the United States to provide uh, impartial information and to provide commentary about values, frankly, that their regime doesn't have. So we have a very powerful megaphone in the Voice of America uh, and specifically in VOA Persian to do that. But because of all these deformities within the building, and because frankly, there's not a sort of a real good understanding of what the larger mission is, what we're actually trying to say to the Iranian people, these, this is a service that frankly has been criminally underutilized in bipartisan fashion. And so uh, to me, the what litmus could, test- what could we be, what, what, How could we be better using it? Well, so I mean, First of all, we have to figure out what we want to say. And, you know, I, I, I uh, fervently hope that the Biden administration's outreach to Iran is not localized to these old, out of touch uh, authoritarian clerics. It's actually intended to have a deeper understanding of what's happening on the Iranian street, sort of the, the currents, the cultural and social currents that are happening within Iranian society. And to message to them that we care about what's happening there and we understand that their political system is not the same as ours, right? Because during the Cold War, VOA was so effective precisely because we could communicate to, um, uh, we could communicate to populations, captive populations behind the Iron Curtain. Here's America, here are our values. Here's why we're different from the regime uh, that is holding you captive. And we have the same ability to do that to the Iranian people today 
we're just not using it. Right. And well, okay, let's leave that there. Full of potential. We have this platform. We have a megaphone, as you said, um, to communicate with the Iranian people. We're not using it. What has happened in the uh, time since the the uh, President Biden has been in Washington? Um, maybe talk about your position and sure. what has happened to this entire platform. Well, so it, it's interesting. I, I don't think it's a uh, stretch to say that the U.S. Agency for Global Media, which is the agency that oversees all uh, U.S. official public broadcasting, uh, is in a bit of a disarray. It's in disarray because the tenure of the last CEO, who was appointed by President Trump and was confirmed in the summer, Michael Pack, uh, was uh, tumultuous. Uh, it was, uh, you know, it sort of it occurred in a politically fraught environment, and uh, there was sort of a lot of political hay and a lot of sort of critical commentary that was made uh, about the sort of the initiatives that he was making. And since then, what you've had is a uh, restoration, more or less, to the status quo ante, the status quo that existed before. The people that uh, Mr. Pack brought in to head up VOA, to head up the constituent agencies, and there's a number of them uh, that broadcast in different parts of the world, they've been summarily fired. Um, and uh, acting directors have been appointed in their stead. But what's most corrosive is the underlying idea that Michael Pack was this uniquely polarizing figure and he really took the agency off the rails. And now that it's back, everything's fine. But the reality is that the agency has been deeply riven by political fissures, by incompetence for a long time. And those fissures still exist, right? We're past the Pack era, but we still have those problems. And sort of frankly, my, my board position is a little bit of an indication of that. Uh, the board was created back in 2017 to uh, oversee uh, sort of to provide strategic guidance to the CEO, um, whoever he or she happens to be, and to oversee sort of the functioning of the agencies. That board's really never gotten off the ground. And, uh, you know, uh, through the sort of through its will, Congress has uh, added additional stipulations. So the board is still sort of a, a project in being. It doesn't really fully exist yet, but it needs to, because it needs to provide the strategy and the oversight for whoever the Biden administration picks to be the CEO. Right? It needs long-range strategic planning because, frankly, we need to, not only to, towards the Iranian people, but to everybody else, we need to know what we want to say and we need to say it well. Right. I mean, that seems to be the message across the board. Have a have a clear message, use the platform. And as you said, 85 million Iranians are hungry for that message. They want real news. They want to hear from us. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a tremendous time to be in this field. I thank you so much, Elon, for joining us. Uh, and um, good luck to ElonBerman.com. And uh, keep us abreast of what happens with uh, this this uh, advisory board and your nomination. Will do. Thank you so much. Thank you. Our next guest um, is Ali Reza Nader from the uh, sorry Foundation for the Defense of Democracy. I was going to say FDD, but not everybody mm -hmm. knows. It's such jargon, and I hate to use jargon. Right. Senior fellow focusing on Iran and U.S. policy in the Middle East at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, FDD in our world. He also re researches the Islamic Republic's systematic repression of religious freedom and currently serves on the ADL's task force on Middle East minorities. Prior to FDD, he was a senior researcher at RAND. Um, and he's wonderful on, on Twitter and he writes wonderful pieces about the Middle East and uh, he's a good friend. And I thank you for joining us, Ali Reza. Thank you for, thank you for inviting me, Lisa. How are you? Doing well. Um, and we I've been trying to get you on the program for a, a while now only because 
I know that you understand the nuances, not only because of your work and research in the field, but obviously you are an Iranian. Uh, you understand what's going on in the country. You have a finger on the pulse of the people, the slogans, the protests, everything that's going on. Um, how, how do you see uh, the current situation? Um, I'm going to, I'm going to say, how do you see the last, let's say, two, three years of the Iran protests against the backdrop of first the pressure campaign under Donald Trump and now one month of what looks like a fast forward into another uh, potential nuclear deal between Washington and Tehran? How have the people of Iran evolved, lived through, reacted to the last few years of U.S. foreign policy? I see the situation in Iran as really explosive. Uh, the Iranian people uh, just have had enough of the Islamic Republic. They're done with it. Uh, they want it to be over with. And we saw mass protests in Iran uh, even before President Trump's maximum pressure campaign. In late 2017 and early 2018, there were uh, nationwide protests. Uh, a lot of them took place and smaller cities and towns across Iran uh, calling for the overthrow of the regime. And I, you know, I think it's important um, to note that uh, these protests were not just economically motivated. Uh, yes, there's a lot of economic pressure on the Iranian people because of the regime's corruption and sanctions. Uh, but also we have to consider that uh, the people of Iran live under a regime that has repressed them politically and socially and religiously for 42 years. And since uh, those protests, we've seen, uh, I would say, thousands of protests across uh, Iran. There are protests in Iran every day. Um, the global media doesn't really pay very much attention to them. Yep. Um, and then in 2019, in November, there were massive protests in Iran. Nothing uh, like we've seen since the 1979 revolution, calling for the regime's overthrow. And the regime uh, responded uh, extremely violently to these protests. Mm -hmm. uh, Reuters estimates that at least 1,500 uh, Iranians were killed. You know, I think the number is actually much higher right. uh, because a lot of families uh, were afraid uh, to report about their loved ones' uh, uh, executions and killings. A lot of families buried their debt secretly and, in fact, had to pay the regime money uh, so the regime would allow them to bury their loved ones. Uh, this is a, big, a huge crime against humanity. And right. I think that, that um, desire to overthrow the regime is still very, very strong uh, in Iran and will continue. You know, you you paint such a um, horrific and graphic picture of these crimes against humanity. You you said it so well. Um, you know, and and it begs the question of the media here in this country, the mainstream media. We don't hear about these protests. We don't hear about you know the 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 execution of an athlete, a young man who did nothing more than attend a peaceful protest. So you know, imagine that was a Black Lives Matters protest. Imagine that was a women's march protest. We do have crimes against women, against minorities, against athletes, against someone who posts on Facebook, for God's sake, right? But, um, you know, I ironically, I should say, in this country, we have, you know, liberals kind of 
sidestepping the human rights issues not and 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 conservatives being more of the champions for human rights in in Iran uh, it's a bit you know it's it's a bit paradoxical from what we are are used to um what do you what do you attribute the media's lack of regard uh of, in covering these stories and there's several reasons uh, we don't have western journal, journalists based in Iran so the regime itself really wants to control a narrative and information coming from inside Iran and really limits access to western journalists the journalists that have been reporting on Iran unfortunately have a very false dichotomy of the regime and false uh, understanding you know they think they're actually moderates in this regime right. uh, a lot of them are uh, supporters of the president Hassan Rouhani who's responsible for ordering the deaths of thousands of Iranians in 2019 mm-hmm. uh, and i think just because of partisan politics in washington dc right. a lot of reporters think if they say that the people of iran want to overthrow the regime somehow this benefits republicans or conservatives or uh trump when he was president and so i think really uh because the issue of iran is so charged politically and it's such a partisan issue mainstream journalists just don't want to really report on it you know take for example um the iranian foreign minister's appearance on uh, various uh, media uh channels especially cnn and if you, if you watch the interviews with zarif his interviewers do not push him on uh anything he says you know they don't right. challenge him on his depictions of the nuclear agreement and his criticisms of the US right. they never ask him about the mass executions that are taking place in Iran right now it's just i you know i find it mind boggling and it's very frustrating and upsetting um there are some um media um and some newspapers that do report on Iran and they do like you said tend to be conservative you know whether it's fox news or the wall street journal um they do a much better job uh, but this shouldn't be an issue that's partisan uh, and if if we look back um you know a few years back especially before the obama administration a lot of democrats uh took a much tougher line on the regime uh and i think because of the nuclear agreement the democratic party uh often acts like the regime's apologists or its lawyers they you know they want to minimize all the terrible things that are happening in Iran because uh they think uh, the highly flawed nuclear program is such a wonderful agreement and in reality it's not yeah speaking of the regime's apologists in DC um many people don't know the depth of or the severity of um the actual uh platforms that are there in DC in order to influence and to lobby and to uh do the mullah's bidding um can you speak to that a bit i know you've researched this quite quite um extensively who are they what do they want and how effective are they being at getting the mullah's message across in DC the washington times just had actually a very wonderful uh article published a few days ago explaining how the regime's uh lobby and echo chamber works in DC and uh Javad Zarif the foreign minister is really the key person 
Uh, he often talks uh, to JCPOA supporters, uh, you know, has dialogue with them, and um, they repeat his talking points, uh, which are picked up by uh, the U.S. media and a lot of analysts and experts in D.C. as well. Uh, and then there's specific groups uh, that echo uh, Zarif's comments as well. The Washington Times article um, mentions the um, National Iranian American Council specifically. This is a group uh, that claims to represent Iranian Americans, uh, but uh, there's a lot of evidence to suggest it has close links to the Islamic Republic. And uh, Zarif's a network is very active in Washington, D.C., uh, really help uh, push for the JCPOA or the nuclear agreement. And if you uh, look look at, you know, who is repeating uh, Zaire's talking points, uh, they're the same characters from the Obama era. And, you know, one message they have right now uh, is that uh, the Biden administration is not being quick enough to go back into the JCPOA, that uh, there's a very limited amount of time, supposedly, which is completely false, and that uh, the Biden administration has to act now. Uh, it's urgent. And uh, this is something that Zarif keeps saying himself, and it's echoed around Washington, D.C. Yeah, uh, we just actually missed one of those headlines that they had set up for, for us. And, um, you know, Aliens didn't fall from the sky. So um, let's see what the next deadline is. Um, you re you referenced this article that I wanted to talk about. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, this is a Washington Times piece. I posted this across um, multiple uh, platforms. I, I wanted to bring attention to it. Obviously, it's a bombshell report. The end just oh. does talk about the apologists and their platform and influence in Washington, D.C. But the beginning outlines, um, you know, something that maybe people who are involved in, in Iran affairs knew, but to others, it's mind-blowing. Uh, this is a piece written by Ben Wolfgang and Guy Taylor in the Washington Times over the weekend. Um, the piece talks about and outlines specific times in which uh, John Kerry um, and Robert Malley, who is plucked to be uh, the next uh, envoy to Iran, um, and they both obviously were very, very integral in negotiating the 2015 JCPOA deal with Iran. Uh, and now we know that these individuals had um, several meetings with Javad Zarif of Iran, the foreign minister, um, while President Trump was still in office. And while President Trump was attempting to get a sideline meeting with uh, Iran's regime during the general, the UN General Assembly, uh, he, he failed. It, the, the whole thing flopped. And now we know why. This piece outlines that during that time or prior to it, uh, these individuals uh, were meeting basically on behalf of the United States and, and steering the Iranian regime uh, as to how to deal with uh, President Trump and basically wait it out because hopefully we'll be in office and we'll, we'll take care of you, basically. That's, that's right. what the, the piece is, is, is saying. Um, you know, Ali I want to get your take on this. I think some people read this and they're like, so what? You know, especially Javad Zarif, he's got, you know, he's friends with John Kerry. They have a familial relationship. They, they, they know each other. John Kerry's daughter is married to an Iranian. Um, I don't know. I don't go to coffee with Javad Zarif. I don't know if you do, but some people read this and think, okay, so they had a meeting. Other people are reading it and saying, Logan Act, it's treason. How do we make sense of this? 
we have to consider that this regime is an enemy. It's an, an enemy of the United States. It's an enemy of the American people. And above all, uh, this regime is an enemy of the people of Iran. And it's one thing to uh, engage with it diplomatically. You know, I'm never against diplomacy. I think the U.S. has a right to use diplomacy as a tool sure. and uh, gain the best out of the leverage is gained uh, since uh, maximum pressure. Uh, but there's really uh, there's no uh, necessity in treating this regime or any of its representatives as friends. And I remember uh, Secretary Kerry had described Javad Zarif as a patriot. He's not a patriot. Uh, he's the representative of an enemy state. And I think it's important for U.S. officials uh, to respect that fact and not try to undermine uh, the policy of the United States, for example, under the Trump administration. Um, the, you know, the Trump administration has a very specific policy of maximum pressure against the regime. And uh, like you said, uh, according to the Washington Times article, uh, John Kerry and Rob Malley, who is now uh, the U.S. envoy to Iran, were involved in uh, backroom discussions with the regime, telling the regime, uh, hold on, um, we're going to come to your rescue once we're back in power. And I think that's very inappropriate. It uh, remind, reminds me of the reset that was promised by Hillary Clinton to the Russians. Um, it, it seems like this is a, a pattern for, for um, you know, Democrat lawmakers to say, you know, hold on and uh, we'll take care of you when the time comes. But just give us they basically are setting the scene um, for, to get this to get this deal. I think that's part of the major problem. Uh, with the Obama-Biden policy toward Iran is that it came with a lot of baggage. And, uh, you know, a big part of it was this uh, desire to become friendly with the regime, to uh, think that this regime uh, will reform itself or moderate its behavior in the region. President Obama actually spoke before Congress one time and said, that uh, the JCPOA or the nuclear agreement could lead uh, to Iran's integration into the global uh, uh, economic system and moderate its behaviors. And none of that happened. The regime's behavior since JCPOA uh, was signed in 2015 has been abysmal. It's terrible now. It's rocketing American bases in Iraq. Yeah. It's taking hostages. It's assassinating people in Europe. Right. It's threatening people in Washington, D.C. Uh, and uh, I think the administration is just rewarding it. Um, right. and I think this is very worrisome uh, uh, for Americans and U.S. national security because any deal the Biden administration makes with this regime, if it goes back into the JCPOA, is going to result and more money for this regime. And we know it's not gonna spend it on its people. It's ma massacring its people on the street. So I think uh, we people in the Biden administration specifically have to get out of this mindset that they can appeal to this regime and moderate this behavior and rely on diplomacy. Diplomacy doesn't work with this regime. It's brutal. And really the only thing it really understands is pressure. And we. 
we had that in the last administration and uh, you know this administration is just getting rid of it unfortunately right and it's it's very difficult what i find to explain to um the american public the, the readership that we have left or right um really across the board uh, the american psyche um understands a deal to result in exactly what president obama um falsely as you said um you know outlined that this deal is is basically a warm hug with the entire country of Iran, meaning if you do it with, you know, not understanding the rift, the, the rift that has grown since the Obama days, and now they're, you know, they're dealing with even a more tumultuous um, and more uh, courageous Iranian population. Um, how do we shift this narrative, Ali Reza? How do we look at this situation and say, you know, we can't, we, we can't be the appeasers because the Iranian people don't want us to be the appeasers. They like, you know, it's very difficult to say the Iranian people like sanctions. They love, you know, they love to be, uh, you know, marginalized from the world economy. It's difficult to say that and, and say they love the pressure campaign, but you and I both know that that's true. How do we shift the narrative to say, if you truly care about the Iranian people, if you care about security in the region, if you care about money not going into terrorism, uh, if you care about women's rights, gay rights, uh, religious persecution, we can go on and on about this then you should stand and confront the Iranian regime. You should stand behind the 85 million people in Iran. And that's the way to uh, really appease. If you want to appease, you're appeasing the wrong party. Um, how do we make this shift? And you're in Washington, D.C., so we're going to start where you are. How do we do it? It's not easy, but I think the best thing that can be done is to provide a platform for Iranians from inside of Iran to uh, speak and uh, tell the Biden administration what they're thinking. And recently, actually, 38 prominent uh, democracy activists and dissidents in Iran signed a letter to President Biden asking him not to lift sanctions against Iran. And look, you know, sanctions are definitely uh, hard on the Iranian people. Um, you know, there's tremendous suffering on in Iran uh, because of the regime's policies that have led to sanctions. But there are those who from inside Iran are insisting uh, that the Biden administration keep that pressure on the regime. And I think we really have to provide a platform for these dissidents. We have to inform lawmakers. Uh, you know, we have to talk to the media as much as possible. Even if CNN doesn't want to report on these issues, I think uh, local media are more willing and I think ultimately we have to break the regime and its lobbies monopoly on information uh, on Iran. We have to break the regime's narrative uh, that there are moderates in Iran. And we have to really get rid of this narrative that is being pushed uh, by the JCPOA supporters that this is the best deal that the U.S. could come up with, and it's foolproof. None of that is true. It's not a good agreement. In, in terms of proliferation, it's actually uh, a very flawed agreement. And just a few years, the regime uh, will have the capability to produce multiple nuclear weapons. Its nuclear program is advancing as we speak. And the Biden administration has really... Uh, it has to really decide what is it doing? Uh, what is its objective? You know, just going back into the JCPOA is not good enough. Right, uh, right. The American people are not uh, um, 
in support of these uh, policies. You know, the American people still remember the hostage crisis. And from the very earliest days, this regime uh, took Americans hostage and it's still taking Americans hostage and it's taking U.S. policy hostage, frankly. Uh, this is not good for U.S. national security. And, um, you know, for me, it's really a nonpartisan issue. You don't have to be a conservative or a liberal to oppose this regime. I think it's very clear that this regime is an enemy of all Americans. And all Iranians, right? Um, to use their own words, we, we're running out of time um, uh, to... And a lot of work is cut out for us uh, to, to change this narrative, to allow these Iranians to um, have a platform. I thank you so much for doing that every day. Thank uh, you. And um, right. the, all the people at FTT are wonderful friends of the Iranian people. And I, I thank you and Cliff May and everybody else there, all our good friends. Uh, and I thank you for giving us uh, your time. We hope to have thank you back. Thank you for inviting me. It was great chatting with you. Likewise, likewise. And to everyone uh, out there, if you'd like to subscribe to our weekly podcast, go to youtube.com slash Lisa Daftari. And to sign up for my daily top 10 newsletter, go to foreigndesknews.com slash newsletter, and you can sign up there. We will talk to you next week. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.